1983, I was two, uh, U2 re- released the studio album called War. And the album began with these words. I can't believe the news today. Oh, I can't close my eyes and make it go away. How long, how long must we sing this song? How long, how long? These are the opening lyrics to the song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It's a song that described the Bogside Massacre that took place on July 30th, 1972. And on that date, Protestant British soldiers fired shots at the 10,000 Catholic protesters that were protesting in Ireland, killing 14 of them. It's called Bloody Sunday. Now, this massacre was part of a larger battle between the Protestant Brits and the Catholic Irish that lasted for several decades. Authors Brendan O'Leary and John McGarry point out that nearly 2% of the population of Northern Ireland have been killed or injured through political violence. Now, many would argue that the seeds of this conflict were not religious, that they were more ethnic divergence. But even so, I think it would be wrong to not highlight the religious differences between these two groups. Did religion play a part in this conflict? Now, if so, does that give support to the question that we're looking at this morning? Doesn't religion cause violence? So as we've been going through, this is, I think, week five in our series, which has been uh, going through these questions that, um, in a book written by Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity. And so we're, we're trying to take a look at some of these difficult questions of the faith and trying to address them. So doesn't religion cause violence? Let me get the ball ro- rolling in a similar manner that I did last week. I'm going to share a quote with a rena- by a renowned atheist, uh, Bertrand Russell, had this to say. He said, quote, religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethic of scientific cooperation in place of the old fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age, but if so, it will first be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door, and this dragon is religion. Is Russell correct? Is religion the dragon that has kept humanity from reaching our potential of a golden age? I mean, surely one can find plenty of examples. Every major religion has engaged in violence in their history. Often that violence was predicated by appealing to some divine mandate. Now, before I give a response, I want to start our time by looking at two of the biggest examples of religious violence we have seen in history. First is to look briefly at Islamic Jihad, and the second are the Christian church-sponsored crusades. Now, at the beginning of the series, I mentioned a book written by Christopher Hitchens, he was one of the four horsemen of the, you know, atheist, new atheist movement. And his book was titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. You might have remembered that from January 7th. Now the title, I actually learned this, I think two weeks ago, this title was intentional. He wrote it this way. 
it was meant to be contradictory to an Arabic phrase, Allahu Akbar, which means Allah is greater, or often is translated in our society as God is great. I, I saw a little clip of Hitchens actually having an interaction with uh, um, a, a, a Muslim about this question, because she was saying how she takes issue with the title of this book. Was it intentional? He said, yes, it was. According to Hitch, Hitchens, he argues that the Islamic focus is to pursue a society that is governed by Sharia law and that the best way to get there is through jihad, holy war. He argues that Islam states that while other religious claims revelatory truth, other religions might claim revelation, but they would state that theirs is the last and final one. And he says, quote, that is straightaway temptation to violence, and it's a temptation they seem quite willing to fall for. Now, I would suggest to take Hitchens' comments with a grain of salt. I mean, he clearly misunderstands and misrepresents the Christian religion, and he may be doing the same here when it pertains to Islam. But his point is that the religious framework of Islam leads to violence through holy war. Maybe not always, but we have seen that. Plenty of examples when that is radicalized in extremist terrorism. Right? You can think of the attacks of September 11th. You have ISIS, even Hamas rhetoric of from the river to the sea. Right? It's a call for a single pro-Palestinian state in the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. The uh, October 7th attack on Israel showed the lengths that they would go to try to purge the Hebrew people from their land and enact their own religious state. But Christianity is not immune to these links of faith and violence. I mean, if you had to think through examples of Christian violence throughout the history, I'm willing to bet nine times out of ten, it might be ten times out of ten, what would come to mind are the Crusades. The Crusades were a series of religious wars between Christians and Muslims from the 11th to the 13th centuries. And over these 200 years, eight different campaigns were launched to secure control of sacred sites to both religions in the Promised Land. Now, I know growing up, I recall hearing about the Crusades. They were described as these very unprovoked attacks by Christians to spread the Christian faith through, um, through these peaceful Muslim territories. Now, that's, that's not really quite the full story of the conflict. I think there's culpability on both sides of this. Much of the land that was in question had previously been considered Christian lands. It had been Christian lands kind of on the heels, remnants of the Roman Empire. But following the death of the prophet Muhammad, much of that land had been conquered by the Muslims. You can make the argument that the Crusades were a counteroffensive. They were trying to reclaim land that had been lost. But even if we tried to make the idea of the Crusades a bit more palatable, those involved failed miserably the ethical test as to how it was carried out. I mean, the launching of the Crusades showcased the corruption of the union of the church with political power. When Jerusalem was conquered in the Crusades, I don't remember which crusade it was, but it was in 1099, thousands of Muslims and Jews were unceremoniously slaughtered. In order to validate their offensive, the Crusaders appealed to the Scriptures Right? They compared the siege and fall of Jerusalem with the fall of Jericho by the Hebrew people during their conquest of Israel. 
Later, during the Fourth Crusade, this is April of 1204, that's when they saw the fall of Constantinople, now Istanbul. It was the heart of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, history, just a brief, I know I'm giving you a lot of history, but 150 years prior to the fall of Constantinople, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church split from one another. They had their religious and political differences, and they went their separate ways. So now in this fourth crusade, instead of slaughtering Muslims, they slaughtered the Eastern Orthodox and took away their wealth. Those who should have been their brothers and sisters of the faith were brutally victimized and pillaged by the crusaders. But this isn't just in the distant past. 1994, during some of our lifetimes, we saw one of the greatest massacres of our generation. In the period of 100 days, 800,000 people were slaughtered in Rwanda when extremist Hutus planned to exterminate the minority Tutsi population. Now, I don't think that the conflict was religiously motivated, but at the time, Rwanda had the highest rate of professing Christians in Africa. So it may not have been a Christian nation, but one cannot ignore the influence of faith when upwards of 80% of the nation were professing believers. Examples like this give support to Bertrand Russell's quote. Maybe what we need to rid ourselves of is religion. Then we can enter this golden age of peace in our world. But in response, I would say, let's not be too hasty. Because those places who have sought to eliminate religion have not fared much better. I think these provide concrete examples of just stripping religion does not lead to that golden age of humanity. I mean, think of the rise of communism. The reign of the Soviet Union, it was estimated that through their tyranny, 61 million people were killed. The Chinese revelation under Mao and following saw 35 million people killed. Many of the smaller communist countries have some of the highest rates of human rights violation. I pointed out North Korea last week, which tops that list, but you also have Cambodia, you have Vietnam. American political scientist R.J. Rummel had this to say about the rise of communism. Of all religions, secular and otherwise, that of Marxism has been by far the bloodiest. Marxism has meant bloody terrorism, deadly purges, lethal prison camps, and murderous forced labor fatal deportations, man-made families, extrajudicial executions, and fraudulent show trials, outright mass murder, and genocide. But we see this also on the opposite end of the political spectrum, that it was just as bad. Right? From communism, you can move to fascism, move to the horrors of Nazi Germany, what separates Adolf Hitler from the communists is that he did not seek to eliminate religion, but instead to use it for his ends. He capitalized on the language and rhythms of faith to help bolster his Third Reich. They doctored Bibles, removing the Old Testament, editing sections of the New to fit their goals. They recast Jesus as Arian, 
They co-opted religious language for their purposes. For example, the Third Reich composed a prayer that was meant to be directed towards Hitler or towards, quote, the Fuhrer. And if you hold it up side by side, it's difficult to not see some resemblance with it to the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we're taught by Jesus Christ himself. Now, I use this example of Nazi Germany for a couple of reasons. Because first, this is yet another example of violence that was not genuinely religious, but it gave that appearance of religion. In Germany, many Christians were complicit in the rise of the Third Reich. There was a a religious-like familiarity to it, and many Christians turned a blind eye when it came to the crimes against humanity. I mean, there were those who resisted, uh, the most famous of which would be Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer stood against Nazism, He was actually involved in a plot, a failed plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, In 1945, he was hanged as a martyr for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. But the other reason that I use this example is because I think it's important for us to learn from history. Hitler was not religious, but he used shadows of religion to further his ends. What has come to my mind in recent years was the attempted insurrection of January 6, 2021, where we saw our capital erupt in violence, all while waving flags bearing the name of Jesus, hymns being sung in the streets. Friends, I don't think that was a religiously motivated attack. Jesus was not on the ballot. But once again, It was once again the violence of humanity clothed in the garb of religion. So I I disagree with Bertrand Russell's statement. Religion is not the cause of violence in our societies. It is not that thing that prevents us from accessing our full potential as humans. Now, as I've said previous weeks, we should not ignore the horrors that have been perpetrated in the name of Christianity— But the existence of those examples does not mean that they're faithful representatives of what faith ought to look like. I mean, to paraphrase Marx, he believed that the church had failed to deliver on its New Testament promises. And I've got got two examples for us to think about why we see this this, uh, seeming connection between faith and violence. Now first, and I've, I've kind of already been pointing to this a little bit, that not everyone who identifies, self-identifies as a Christian is one. Now, I'm not trying to tell you who is in the kingdom, who's out of the kingdom, that is above my pay grade, but I can confidently say that there are people who say that they are a Christian, but they're going to be in for a surprise on Judgment Day. I mean, Jesus told us this. He told a story depicting this very scenario. Matthew 25, verses 41 to 46. Jesus tells the story of people who appear before his judgment and they're caught off guard because Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. It turns out it was those who did not live according to his principles in life. They didn't feed the hungry. They didn't clothe the naked. They didn't visit the sick, the imprisoned. Again, we don't work for our salvation. I want to be clear about that. But there is this connection that through salvation, there ought to be fruit of that. There are some who claim the name of Christ and commit violence in his name who are not aligned with his ideals. 
And again, some of you might get tired of me beating this drum, but it's important, I think, for us to recognize because we've seen a, very, a, a major cultural shift over the last few decades, especially in one particular subset of Christians, those who are labeled as evangelicals. Right? Historically, an evangelical or an evangelical had more to do with theology, had to do with practice. There was something called the Bebbington Quadrilateral, and it identified the four main qualities that defined whether or not someone was an evangelical. But that theological understanding of evangelicalism has been replaced with a political alignment. Rebecca McLaughlin describes the religious imagery of Nazi Germany in a quote that I think is relevant to us in our 21st century American politics. Jesus, she says, um, Jesus is not a ticket to martyrdom, but a path to power. I think we need to be really careful and recognize that link in the world that we're living right now, because there's a lot of talk about evangelicals. I mean, there's a lot of studies that talk about how evangelicals are actually less likely to go to church than their progressive counterparts. Again, church doesn't make you a Christian, but it's kind of a natural outpouring of following Jesus. So that first piece was not everyone who says they're a Christian are actually a Christian. Again, I'm not telling you, I'm not saying who is and who isn't. I'm just explaining that there's, there's a disconnect there. So not only is some of the violence done in the name of Christ committed by pseudo-Christians, but to my second point is that even those who do genuinely follow Jesus were going to make poor decisions. The Bible teaches us to expect moral failures from Christians. John, 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're a work in progress. Christ is transforming our hearts in obedience to him, but we still battle wills that are innately sinful and selfish. So much war has been propagated because of power, hubris, greed. And I'm going to suggest that those are things that all of us probably wrestle with daily, yet on smaller scales. The gospel teaches us that we have freedom The very next verse from John says that if we confess our sins, we're lying if we say we don't have sin, but if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. But it's a process. It takes time. We're not going to be perfect on this side of paradise. So, What I've been trying to do up to this point is respond to that initial question, doesn't religion cause violence? We've seen that there are religious communities who engage in violence, but I would argue that has more to do with our fallen nature than the religion that we choose to follow. They teach you this in Psychology 101, Research Methods 101. Correlation does not equal causation. We saw parallel examples of atrocities in atheist communism and fascism that tried to masquerade as religion. With the remaining time that I have, what I want to focus on is really the get to the heart of the religion, the faith that we profess. What is it that Jesus taught on the issue of violence? 
doesn't mean that we throw out what people have propagated in his name, but this is getting to the root of what, what is the direction, what is the alignment of our faith. As we consider what true Christianity should look like, we need look no further than the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Right, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to follow, quote, the way of Jesus. I've shared it a few times recently that in the time of Jesus' day, you know, rabbis had, a, had disciples, and uh, the disciples followed what was called a yoke. Remember, Jesus said, take my, you know, my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That yoke is, is the set of teachings that a rabbi led that the disciples were meant to follow. And when Jesus gave his commission after his disciples were resurrected, after he was resurrected to his disciples, this is Matthew 28, he didn't say, go and convert a bunch of Christians. What he said was, make disciples of all nations, right? Take those things that you have learned from me, you've heard from me, put them in practice, invite other people to join in that work, not just invite people to believe in me, invite others to be my disciples. So here's just some rapid-fire passages, I, I don't have them on the screens, that highlight the way this, this yoke of Jesus, this way of Jesus as it de- deals with violence. Matthew 5, 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Violence begetting violence. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Just a few verses later, Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How about this question and answer of Jesus, Matthew 18, 21 to 22 Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. How about being willing to snub your own ambitions and die to self? Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, Jesus said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or we could go to the writings of Paul, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you get the drift? I mean, I think these are pretty self-explanatory passages, right? Don't pay someone back in kind, but turn the other cheek. Love those who are persecuting you, i.e. committing violence against you. Forgiveness is not to be exhausted. Be willing to lose your life for Jesus instead of clenching to it tight-fisted. Overcome evil with good. I believe that the teachings of Jesus are antithetical to the violence that we see in the world today. Now, there might be exceptions to this. Is it acceptable to use violence to defend the vulnerable? It's a little bit of a gray area. Jesus doesn't specify with clarity on that. St. Augustine of Hippo put forth a framework 
uh, that kind of informs a lot of this today. It's called the just war theory, and it describes certain reasons and, you know, reasons that you might go to war and certain policies to observe when violence may be necessary. I mean, the Bible does, you know, the, the arguments made, the Bible does say that one of the roles of government is to terrorize evil. So, you know, perhaps there is a place for armed forces with just a little bite to them for the sake of goodness and justice. But as you can imagine, even if we're willing to make that admission, it is very easily abused. It was just war theory, uh, it was just war comments that were used to justify the war in Iraq under President Bush that he was appealing to. Was that the right course of action? Uh, It's a little hazy. While I believe that Jesus unequivocally taught nonviolence, there might be exceptions that it's okay for us to consider. But I think the best way to see this intersection of violence and Christianity is with the cross. In fact, this is the central violence of the Christian faith. Violence is used by the strong to hurt and oppress the weak. Through the cross, the most powerful man ever to live submitted himself to the most brutal death of the time. He died in order to save the weak and powerless. And then a few days later, Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead, breaking the power of the grave, shaming the powers that use violence to oppress and giving hope to a new way to live that's not based around the survival of the fittest. In the words of Rebecca McLaughlin, Christianity does not glorify violence, it humiliates it. And we see this. We have so many examples we can see of this picture of faith by the earliest followers of Jesus Christ, right? Under first fierce persecution by the Roman Empire, when Jesus said, love those who persecute you, they had a, a tangible way that they could do it. Those saints of old took Jesus' words to heart and they willingly went to their deaths without fighting back against their oppressors. Throughout the centuries, there have been countless examples of those who model this posture of humiliating violence by not succumbing to it. While the Crusades were raging, St. Francis of Assisi taught, quote, your God is of your flesh. He lives in your nearest neighbor in every man, encouraging us to love our neighbor, love those who are not us or like us. During the season of the conquistadors of European expansion, again, couched in religious garb, that's when the Anabaptists were born who lived counterculturally in steadfast pacifism. I mean, this stream is where we get modern-day Amish, Brethren, and Mennonite denominations. While many Christians violently upheld segregation, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used nonviolent protests to disarm the powers of hatred and oppression. All of these traditions through the two millennia, were shaped out of the crucible of faith which refused to repay evil for evil, but instead sought to overcome evil with good. The history of the church is marred by many examples of Christians not behaving like Jesus. We should not ignore these stories, but remember them in sorrow 
and repentance. But at the same time, remember that Jesus has called us to a way that is better. May we be a people who learn to love our neighbor like ourselves, who are not caught up in our pride or power or greed, which would cause us to impugn the image of God in someone else and treat them as something less than human. And so as we think about this connection of faith and violence, I've got a couple of questions this week for you, and I'll put them on Facebook and the website like usual. So, I found this quote while I was doing my research this week. Christianity did not become a major religion by the quality of its truth, but by the quantity of its violence. What do you think of that statement? Do you agree with it? Why or why not? Second, are there scenarios where violence is acceptable, right? I, I, I believe Jesus, I mean, you have like the Mennonites that live in pacifism. They take those statements of Jesus very literally, and hold to them dearly. Are there scenarios in your mind where violence is acceptable? This is kind of, you know, boring on that just war stuff. Or do the teachings of Jesus lead us to pacifism? Last is this. I I had those five Bible verses on the the screen um, where Jesus taught about loving your enemies, turning the other cheek. Um, Which of those verses quoted today is the most difficult for you to live out, and why? Because I think all of us probably struggle with something, maybe struggle with taking up our cross, crucifying the flesh daily, whatever it might be. I encourage you to think about those things. Let me pray, and then we've got one more song to sing together. Lord, as we come together as part of your family, I must admit that there is some, some shame in that family tree. You know, we all might have an uncle that's a little crazy and a little out there that we're ashamed of, and I think that there are seeds in our family tree where our brothers and sisters of the faith have not acted the way that they ought. And so, Lord, we come to you in confession and repentance of that, acknowledging those things, not ignoring them, not sugarcoating them, Uh, But Lord, may we live in such a way that that does not become our story. May we live more in line with Jesus, the things that you have taught, that we are connected, surrendered to you as we sang this morning. And by being surrendered to your will and putting aside our will, there's no cause for us to take up the sword against our neighbor. Lord, help us to navigate this world. Help us to live that life of counter-cultural pacifism that you have called us to. We can't do it on our own, Lord. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to guide us in that. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.